It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. The year is 2022, and the news media most of us grew up with is all but dead. Advancements in technology have forever altered the nature of news and political news coverage. Network, cable, and online news organizations value speed over accuracy and cater their reporting to specific ideological and demographic groups. They lean hard into storylines that stimulate their base and avoid reporting stories that run counter to their preferred narratives. The result is an ever-expanding partisan divide within an inadequately informed populace. A cultural civil war is brewing. Two rogue journalistic purists stand opposed and have dedicated themselves to protecting journalistic integrity and the relentless pursuit of truth. Their names are Liz Habib and John Ziegler, and this is their podcast, The Death of Journalism. Welcome to episode number 36 of the Death of Journalism podcast. My name is John Ziegler. So much to get to on this program, including another major mainstream news media security breach on COVID, perhaps the biggest yet. But first, I want to begin with something that we discussed in episode 35, because there has been a pretty significant update on one of the many stories we discussed in episode 35, which was Andrea Mitchell lying about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in an interview with Kamala Harris about his efforts to try to curtail critical race theory in Florida schools, and specifically a a course called AP African-American Studies, which has been portrayed by the media, specifically by NBC and Andrea Mitchell, as somehow not teaching slavery in Florida schools, which is just flat out wrong. It's a lie. It's actually the opposite of the truth. It's required by law in Florida to teach slavery, the, the history of slavery in Florida schools. But that didn't stop Andrea Mitchell from tossing a softball to Vice President Kamala Harris, one that she barely foul tipped, uh, with a lie. And just to refresh your recollection, here was Andrea Mitchell about a week or a week and a half ago in this uh, quote-unquote interview with the vice president lying about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the issue of race in Florida schools. Let me ask you, what does Governor Ron DeSantis not know about black history and the black experience when he says that slavery and the aftermath of slavery should not be taught to Florida school children? I don't know what he knows and what he doesn't know, but I know this. Any push to censor 
America's teachers and tell them what they should be teaching in the best interest of our children in in partnership with the parents of America is, I think, um, wrong-headed. The people who know our children best are their parents and their teachers in terms of the time they spend and the investment they've placed in the brains and capacity of our children who are our nation's future. And it should not be some politician saying what should be taught in our classrooms. So as I said in episode 35, that's a lie. And it's outrageous, and it has enormous impact because it's starting to create this narrative of Ron DeSantis as somehow a racist, a white supremacist, uh, anti-academic, all sorts of crazy things, which you know <laughs> might not hurt him in a Republican primary in these days, might actually help him. But if he were to get through a Republican presidential primary, would have a very deleterious effect in a general election. And they know this. And I've said many times that the mainstream news media is far, far more afraid of Ron DeSantis right now than they maybe ever were, or certainly currently are, of Donald Trump. They're not afraid of Donald Trump at all because he gives them everything that they possibly want, including Democratic victories. Well, since we discussed that on episode 35, there have been a couple of important developments, which I think are significant, not just because of correcting the record on the issue, but what they say about the larger reality of this emerging presidential race between DeSantis and Trump, because it's very clear from the way that the DeSantis people reacted, he's running for president. And there are other indications in the last few days as well that Ron DeSantis is indeed going to run for president. But let me go through what happened here with Andrea Mitchell. So after that uh, podcast episode was taped, the DeSantis people went on the attack. Uh, The press secretary for uh, Governor DeSantis, Brian Griffin, put out a statement. I think we need to take a step back. There will be no consideration of anything related to NBC Universal or its affiliates until and at least Andrea Mitchell corrects the blatant lie she made about the governor. Quote, unquote, Governor DeSantis says that slavery and the aftermath of slavery should not be taught to Florida school children. This is false. And NBC and its affiliates display a consistent track record of truthful reporting. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Please feel free to pass this up and around the network. That was Brian Griffin, DeSantis press secretary, in a statement to NBC. Now, I don't know whether or not uh, this satisfied the DeSantis people with regard to NBC. And by the way, picking a fight with NBC is not exactly a bad idea if you're going to run for the Republican presidential nomination, especially against Donald Trump. But then Andrea Mitchell put out her own statement. Now, this is a headline from an article about that statement. Andrea Mitchell admits that she was, quote unquote, imprecise, (laughs) imprecise when claiming Ron DeSantis didn't want slavery taught in schools. The statement more specifically said, in my interview last Friday with Vice President Harris, I was imprecise in summarizing Governor DeSantis' position about teaching slavery in schools. Governor DeSantis is not opposed to teaching the fact of slavery in schools, but he has opposed the teaching of an African-American studies curriculum, as well as the use of some authors and source materials that historians and teachers say makes it all but impossible for students to understand the broader historical and political context behind slavery and its aftermath in the years since. Now, that is a really weak sauce, uh, not even close to an apology or, or at least an admission 
of a mistake. And it doesn't say that she lied. Imprecise language is not what happened. She lied. And then this bit about, uh, you know, well, there are those in academia who say this will make it impossible to properly teach the, the way that we want to. What that really means is this makes it impossible for us to teach critical race theory and to use this course as political propaganda when we pursue the agenda of race reparations and universal affirmative action. Those are my words, but that's basically what this is. And in fact, Andrew Mitchell has exposed further his, her inherent and obscene bias against DeSantis and the truth in her statement. Now, I don't know whether that the statement satisfied the DeSantis people. I guess we'll see with regard to how and if he, he does any sort of interaction or interviews with NBC personnel. But DeSantis didn't stop there. DeSantis himself, as he is wont to do, went on the attack and in a press event uh, took NBC to task for their lies. And here's what that sounded like. You just had on MSNBC, you had the uh, the reporter saying that Governor DeSantis does not want students to learn about slavery and its aftermath. Well, if you actually looked at what our standards are, not only is it not prohibited to teach that, it's required to teach that. It's required to teach all of those things. It's required under Florida statutes to teach about racial discrimination. And so they will say, oh, we, they had the school had to take a book about Hank Aaron off the shelf because it talks about he faced racial discrimination. And you're thinking like, okay, and why are they doing that? They're doing that to try to create a narrative. They're not doing that because Florida has a law or anything like that. They know that's not in the law, but they're doing it because they know there's enough people in corporate media who will just take that and will run with that. So we've got all these examples cataloged um, of basically media lies to try to do to try to do the hoax. A lot of this has been debunked. The Jacksonville person got I think got fired. There's a teacher in Central Florida that was doing really inappropriate things with the in terms of what they were putting out online. So that's gone. And so at the end of the day in Florida, um, you know, if it's explicit and pornographic, parents have the right to object, and it should be taken off. And then in terms of issues involving uh, American history, uh, it's very clear in Florida standards that we are required to teach all aspects of black history, not queer theory, but actual aspects of black history, including MSNBC, slavery and its aftermath, and including and required also uh, to teach uh, about the discrimination. So that is in, in the law. And so when they're trying to say they have to take a Roberto Clemente book or something like that, they are lying to you. And it's one thing for a, a, a stooge who's a partisan apparatchnik that may be in like a teacher union to try to do this, but to have corporate media not immediately shoot that down, because all you have to do is look up our standards, very easy to do. And so it's really just a reckless disregard for what the truth actually is. And, you know, the good news about it is I think because of the lack of guardrails on some of this stuff in terms of being able to do private suits, the, the standard has gotten lower and lower. Um, the preparation has gotten worse. Fact-checking has gotten worse, all that stuff. But it, what it's done is it's created a situation where the vast majority of the people know that this is an agenda that's trying to be imposed on them. They know these are narratives, and so they don't typically believe it anymore. And I think that a lot of those outlets uh, only have themselves to blame. So DeSantis clearly not taking 
any of this lightly, going on the attack, making sure that none of this can get any real traction, although the media, I'm sure, will allow it to do so, but doing the best he possibly can to make sure that he nips this kind of stuff in the bud, which is very, very smart, and I think he's rather effective at it. He understands the news media at least as well as Donald Trump, and frankly, I've always thought that Donald Trump's understanding of the news media is maybe his greatest strength as a candidate and even as a president. And so uh, kudos to to DeSantis for that. But I do think that maybe the larger issue here, which I've already implied, is that all of this is incredibly consistent and almost perfect evidence that Ron DeSantis is indeed running for president. Because as governor of Florida, I'm not sure you would go to these lengths and be this proactive and this aggressive over this kind of situation. You might, but you wouldn't probably go to these lengths especially when you got a whole lot of other stuff going on. I mean, Ron DeSantis is the busiest guy in politics by far, way, way busier than the president of the United States. And he even has his own book coming out. And this is all before he officially announces a candidacy for president, which if it happens, is probably not going to happen at least till May or June sometime in, in that realm. And so to me, the most significant part of this is this is all clear evidence. He's running for president. This is 100% consistent with a a guy who has decided unless something really horrible happens, I'm running for president. I just haven't announced yet. There was further evidence of that late over the weekend when the governor's YouTube channel dropped what sure as heck looked and sounded like a campaign ad for president and a really good one at that. And here's what that sounded like. When the world lost its mind, When common sense suddenly became an uncommon virtue, Florida was a refuge of sanity, a citadel of freedom for our fellow Americans and even for people around the world. Ron DeSantis has decided to put his people first. Ron DeSantis taking a lot of heat over it, but he's not backing down. Florida's success has been made more difficult by the floundering federal establishment in Washington, D.C. An inflationary spending binge that has left our nation weaker and our citizens poorer. It has enacted pandemic restrictions and mandates. It has recklessly facilitated open borders. It has imposed an energy policy that has crippled our nation's domestic production. This has caused many to be pessimistic about the country's future. Some even say that failure is inevitable. Florida is proof positive that we the people are not destined for failure. DeSantis wins. He has made a promise and he's making good on the promise. Florida is leading the nation. We are the nation's fastest growing state. We rank number one in education freedom. We are number one in economic freedom. Florida also ranks number one in public higher education. This is a record we can all be proud of. That's why the left hates Governor DeSantis because he's a winner. That's what the guy does, he wins. Decline is a choice. Success is attainable. And freedom is worth fighting for. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Now, I'll fully admit, I love that ad. Of course, I'm pretty much the target demographic for it because that's why I'm a DeSantis supporter to begin with. But even though I'm a DeSantis supporter and I'm excited by the fact that it certainly looks as if he's going to be running for president, barring some black swan event, I am still very, very hesitant about how this is all going to turn out. I have said previously, and I continue to believe, and at times it's even caused me to to dip into a bit of a depression, that it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for him to navigate this obstacle course and, and all the landmines that are in front of him to be able to get from where he currently is to the presidency. I mean, he's got to go against almost everybody. Now, he's used to doing that. He did that in Florida when it came to the COVID response, and he ended up winning big time, literally and figuratively. If he can do it on this, I'll be really amazed because he almost has everybody going up against him other than maybe Fox News Channel. I'm going to get to Donald Trump's latest statement about DeSantis and Fox News Channel, which happens almost every episode now of the Death of Journalism podcast. We probably ought to make it a feature, Trump's latest attack on, on DeSantis. But uh, we'll hold off on that for just a moment. Uh, and so I am, I am in the camp that believes that in a multi-person race, multi-person meaning five or six at least legitimate candidates where the debate stage is, is too damn crowded, as long as Donald Trump maintains his 35 to 45 percent of the Republican base in, in a cult-like fashion, then DeSantis can't win. He cannot win, uh, at least not in a way that would make him viable in a general election because it would just be too much of a war. He'd, he'd emerge too badly damaged and the media would just be able to pick him off pretty easily in the general election against an incumbent unless, you know, something happened to Biden or the economy completely collapsed. But it, under normal circumstances, it would be really difficult to see how DeSantis would be able to pull that off and the more likely scenario would be that Trump would end up winning. So I that is my position. Although I firmly believe that one on one DeSantis would beat Trump. Now how much of a bloodbath it would be, I don't know. It could be really bad or could be not that bad, but the problem there would be that Trump would sabotage DeSantis in a general election. That's always been my greatest fear. I know someone close to Donald Trump who does not believe that he would do that. I laughed at him in our latest conversation where, by the way, I was trying to convince him to uh, work for Trump again in the uh, upcoming primary, not because I want Trump to win, but because I thought that was the best advice for my friend based upon the current situation. But um, but I digress just to show you my objectivity on all this. However, despite my pessimism, and I'm known as a pessimistic person, although, frankly, the only time I'm ever wrong or usually ever wrong is when I'm too optimistic. So when someone tells me I'm pessimistic, I say, oh, so you mean I'm a realist? You mean I'm right almost all the time? Despite my pessimism, 
I do try to be as optimistic as possible. And there are some signs, some signs of potential reasons for optimism here, at least as as of this taping. Let me share a few with you. One of them comes from uh, Liz Habib, the person who started this podcast with me and co-hosted with the Benefit of Hindsight podcast about the uh, Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal. Longtime friend. We co-hosted a, a newscast together at NBC affiliate in Steubenville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia, some 32 years ago. And she and I were texting uh, over the weekend, and she kind of stunned me by saying that she is now on Team DeSantis. Now, um, the reason why I find that very significant, this might sound a little silly, but I have to say the fact that I perceived her as previously being on Team Trump, based upon statements she made in the early portions of of this particular podcast, The Death of Journalism, when she was co-hosting with me before logistical reasons made it impossible to keep that going, uh, that had a huge weight on me. That, That really influenced my thinking because I thought, okay, if Liz, someone who's known me this long, someone who I convinced Jerry Sandusky is innocent against all odds. So she's willing to believe me that Jerry Sandusky, the most hated man in America, is innocent of all the charges against him. And she knows that I'm a DeSantis guy and I hate Trump. If I can't convince her, after convincing her about Sandusky, that uh, that DeSantis is the way to go, then what hope is there? I mean, here she is. She lives in most of her life in Florida now. And, you know, she hated the whole COVID response. And she had been on Team Trump. Well, now that she's telling me she's on Team DeSantis, I'm thinking, holy cow, okay, wait a minute. Uh, a, a significant data point in my analysis that DeSantis was in big trouble in the long term here, may no longer be in play. Now, it's just one person, but I think it's an interesting one-person focus group for the reasons that I, I just stated. So that's good news. Then there's my wife, who in her circle here in Southern California as a, a public school teacher and within her family, her family is a very strong Trump-supporting family, almost almost universally, and um and and she has been reporting back to me that she's getting a lot of uh, responses from people both in her circle of at work as well as her circle within her family that people are shifting towards DeSantis away from Trump. Now, to be clear, these are while they're Trump supporters, they're not like the hard, hard, hardcore Trump supporters, but this is significant nonetheless. And again, it's anecdotal. But I think it's an interesting focus group, uh, even though most of this is in California, which has an interesting poll out about the race, which I'll get to momentarily. But what maybe was most interesting about what my wife says is that there's actually a substantive reason, almost a silver bullet, as to why they are shifting away from Trump to DeSantis. And she volunteered this. This did not come from me asking about it. And my wife's not an overly political person. So again, I found this to be particularly interesting and maybe significant. And she said that a lot of those who are in her circle that are shifting from Trump to DeSantis are doing so because of the one-term issue. In other words, the fact that Trump, if he were to win, can only serve one term as opposed to DeSantis, who could serve eight years. And I thought, well, boy, that first of all, that's odd because, you know, usually Trump people are not 
easily convinced by facts or logic. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, because generally that's not the way cult members work. And we've seen it certainly with regard to COVID. Once people get invested into a belief, you really can't convince them out of it with facts or, or logic or, or argument. And so that was, I thought, a particularly interesting and also potentially very optimistic perspective that there could be a silver bullet here. I always thought if there was an Achilles heel for Trump among his base of support, it was his his mindless, continual, 100% support for Operation Warp Speed or the vaccines because he thinks that's his greatest achievement. He saved millions and millions and millions of lives because of the vaccines and that his blind spot there was going to hurt him. Maybe there's two blind spots. Maybe those are the two things that could theoretically push enough of the Trump supporters away from him to allow DeSantis to win this without there being an absolute uh, death blow, blood bloodbath, World War One trench warfare type of primary on the Republican side, which would basically just hand the presidency to Joe Biden and the Democrats for a second term. So may- maybe there's two. I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm trying not to be delusionally optimistic here, but uh, you know that that's what I'm getting from people that I think are significant and trustworthy and and potentially uh, indicative of a larger reality. And as far as the overall larger reality is concerned, there is some data to back this up, at least here in California, because interestingly enough, there is a new poll out. And this is not from a conservative outlet. This is from UC Berkeley, the Institute of Governmental Studies. But it's an interesting poll from a couple of different perspectives. One, because they had polled the, uh, almost exactly the same question before the midterms back in late summer of 2022. And now they're doing so again. And the results have shifted pretty significantly. Again, this is California Republicans. Now, you know, California is not going to have any influence over the the general election when it comes to president, because obviously Democrats are going to win the state without much of a fight, if at all. However, when it comes to the primary process, we have the most delegates to the convention if this becomes a, a real food fight. And also, by the way, you could argue there's more Republicans in the state of California than there are in any other state in the United States. So it ought to count for something. I also think it's interesting because California Republicans tend to be a different breed. And I have always thought that they were Trumpier than average. One, because there's a lot of rural areas in California. But two, think about what you have to be to be a Republican in California. You have to have asbestos skin and not care what people think of you. And and so in, in my view, I've always perceived the California Republican as uh, you know much more in tune with Trump because otherwise you wouldn't be a Republican. There's not a lot of soft Republicans here in California. Otherwise, you'd be a Democrat is basically what I'm trying to say. And so with all that said, here are the results of this most recent poll. They, they polled 11 candidate choices. So this is like the, the nightmare scenario from the John Ziegler perspective of, uh-oh, you know, there's too many candidates. We're repeating 2016. This plays right into Trump's hands. So out of 11 candidate choices, 37% of respondents supported DeSantis and 29% supported Trump, resulting in an 8% spread between the politicians. 
Um, the results show a change from August poll results where Trump led DeSantis 38 to 27. So it's almost a complete flip. Trump goes from leading 38-27 to losing 37-29. Again, it's one poll, and it's California, and it's February of 2023. So it's it's not definitive for, by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it is interesting, and the most important part of this is, to me, Trump at 29%. That is the danger zone for Donald Trump. Because my entire concern about Trump being able to win this nomination, or at the very least make it impossible to win in a way where DeSantis would be viable in a general election, is based on the notion that Trump controls 35 to 45% of the Republican base come hell or high water, that they are with him no matter what. That is my bedrock belief in all of this. And if that belief is not accurate, if it's no longer true, then Trump's in trouble. Think about it from the standpoint of a uh, a roller coaster ride. We have this battle with my five-year-old daughter, Diana, whenever we go to amusement parks, because she's right on the edge of 48 inches to be able to ride the ride. Well, for Trump, 35% is the 48-inch mark. If he can't get 35% bedrock, you know, absolute floor of his support, then he can't stop anybody else, uh, at least not very easily, unless there were three or four people who not just split any of the votes, but split it evenly. And I don't see that scenario. That could happen, but it seems highly unlikely right now. What I I perceive is going to happen is that DeSantis will be leading but he's not going to be able to herd all these cats, as I referenced in episode 35. And it's going to take a long time before it all sorts out. And who knows how many uh, caucuses or primaries before everybody else drops out. And it's finally mano a mano Trump versus DeSantis, assuming no black swan events. And so if it's 29%, again, it's California, it's one poll. If it's 29%, that is a real danger zone for Donald Trump because he can't get it done at 29%, because you know that means that all DeSantis really has to do is get in the 40s, and I think that's very doable. My concern has always been, can DeSantis get it somehow over 50% uh, in a multi-person race while tr- trying to herd cats and, and with everybody against him, including many elements of the conservative media? So um, again, I don't want to overplay it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be at least somewhat optimistic here, but there is some hope if that poll is, in fact, indicative of what's happening in other states. Now, there are national polls that still show Trump crushing DeSantis nationwide. And I think the key reason why the polls are all over the place is, one, it's February 2023. That's number one. But number two, related to that, is DeSantis is not officially in the race. You can't know for sure what the polls are really saying until DeSantis is an official candidate. And he's about as close as you can possibly get right now. But he's not officially a candidate. And that does make a difference. And so I'm going to hold off on any definitive conclusions about the polling uh, until uh, that actually happens, which I'm now confident it will happen again sometime later in the spring, early on in the summer. Now, it's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. 
And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's go to Trump and a couple things going on with him. He got an enormous amount of positive play, especially in the conservative media, for his trip to East Palestine, Ohio. Uh, where he comforted the, the people there who are recovering from this environmental disaster with the train derailment. And, um, and look, um, you know, kudos. If he made people happy, that's great. Gave them hope. Uh, it was certainly a political victory for him, although Saturday Night Live did not particularly like it. They mocked it pretty well, and, and I thought in a fairly funny fashion. But I'm not going to uh, criticize Trump for going to East Palestine. I mean, if, you know, if there was no real harm done, I don't know how much help he really did with his Trump water and buying some people uh, you know, lunch at, at McDonald's. Great. Uh, fantastic. Uh, but the, the significant part of this, though, to me, was how the con- elements of the conservative media reacted to it. This is the part that really scared me, uh, especially – over the last few days and started to get me rather despondent about how this was all going to turn out. And and I started to see a a replay of 2016 in my brain because it seemed to me as if East Palestine was being used by some in the conservative media as their excuse to scurry back into Donald Trump's camp. And to be clear, and I've gone through this previously about how the conservative media really works. The whole business, not a cause episode, which you've, if you haven't heard, you, you've got to listen to because it really is a, a PhD course in, in the real conservative news media. In, in, that, in that vein, I am highly skeptical and very concerned that the conservative media will realize that it's too dangerous to dump on Trump, that they cannot abandon Trump unless it is so clearly obvious that he's going to lose, that there's really no other choice and there's limited damage in doing so. There's always going to be damage because the Trump cult will hold it against you if you abandon Trump. But uh, right now, it has been my perception that nobody of any significance in the conservative media is going to go go overtly against Donald Trump. It's just not going to happen. And I want to use one example. It's going to seem like a really small example because the person involved is not a household name, although they have a very large following. I'm referring to Tim Pool, who I wouldn't even call him a, a 
conservative or Republican. He's more of a, a anti uh, liberal, you know, very much anti COVID tyranny type of guy. I guess they'll call him a poor man's Joe Rogan, uh, independent media type with a large following. And, you know, he hosts a, a video podcast or talk show. And he used the East Palestine situation to basically come out and endorse Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis, who, who he gives, you know, some lip service to. Oh, he's he's really good, Ron DeSantis. But, you know, the reality is, and I'm I'm interpreting here, but he has nowhere near the audience that Donald Trump does. And so I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. He doesn't say anything about audience in this clip you're about to hear. But that's how I perceive it. And I'm playing this clip because I, I think that it could be representative of a much, much larger and more significant reality. But here was his rationalization on why he has now decided that while he likes DeSantis, he's going to go with Trump. Trump being boastful and, and, and talking like that is kind of something I would roll my eyes at. But I got to be real with the East Palestine stuff, with seeing Joe Biden go to Ukraine, I'm like, I'm 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 voting for Trump. Like Ron Ron DeSantis has the tact. He's got good policy. He's done great for Florida. But just like I, at, this was such an unnerving move that Joe Biden did with this Ukraine trip. It it was like getting punched in the balls as hard as possible. And I just we need a a, a bloviating braggart like Trump who really will go down to East Palestine. If that's what it takes, like I, I like Ron DeSantis, but he's he comes he does I don't know man I can't explain it. It's like Ron DeSantis has done a really good job. He's given us a lot of what we want. We've seen a lot of tr tremendous success. But he's a VP. He's he's a, he's he's a, he's a commander. He's a lieutenant. He's he's a, he's a number one. Donald Trump is the is the crazy guy who's like get me a plane. I'm flying to East Palestine right now. And Joe Biden's the guy who says whatever my boss tells me to do, I'll go do, and then gives away our money. And then Ron DeSantis is the guy who's like, yeah, we're going to do it right. We're going to fix it. We're going to get what people, pe people want. But that's a COO, not a CEO. Trump's a CEO. DeSantis is a COO. For those that understand corporate structure, you get exactly what I mean. The COO handles the, the, the directives of the CEO. The CEO, which is Trump, says, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. Make it happen. It seems like a Then you get a DeSantis who understands and he executes. So, again, not to overplay how significant Tim Pool is. I'm 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 concerned that this is representative of a larger reality. And I saw Ben Shapiro, who has always been incredibly fearful of attacking Trump and has played this game of footsie for years about, uh, you know, what he's going to say about Trump when it's obvious that he loathes Trump probably as much as I do, but just won't say it because he's got too much to lose. But he also was uh, praising Trump all over the place for East Palestine. And Glenn Beck, uh, a friend of mine who I've been on his show many, many times, had Donald Trump on to talk about East Palestine. Um, and so and Glenn Beck's an interesting one, because while I've not talked to him about this, you know, if you want to look at a barometer for how the conservative media is going to handle this Trump versus DeSantis thing, I would look at Glenn Beck because Beck is someone who went to the edge of of career death by opposing Trump and then salvaged himself and the blaze by eventually being the very, very last major media figure to get on the Trump train. And it appears to me as if as mostly recovered, probably not totally, but mostly recovered from that. Is he going to have the guts 
after being burned badly once to do it again. I, I would really be surprised. I would be really, my guess is that Beck, like a lot of people are going to be very agnostic here. And I'm not sure agnosticism is going to get the job done, but uh, I would look at Beck as a key uh, player here, not as far as overall influence, although he has a large audience, but again, as an indication of the larger reality. That's where I'm trying to go here. That's just what I'm trying to illustrate is, is to, are we going to see a repeat of what happened in 2016 with regard to the fear of offending Trump and offending his audience, which is such a huge portion of the core customer base for conservative media outlets. Now, I will say that what's happening at Fox News Channel is really interesting. Fox News Channel does appear to be all in, as was perceived because of Rupert Murdoch, for Ron DeSantis. Now, they're not going to openly criticize Trump, at least not yet, but they are all in uh, so far, at least, when it comes to Ron DeSantis. Even Mark Levin, who's famously uh, was very anti-Trump and then became one of the worst Trump sellouts. And I confronted him personally at a talk radio convention where he tried to object to my description uh, of him. And then he facilitated that description later on when he completely sold out uh, to Donald Trump in one of the worst ways possible, a guy I actually used to respect. But uh, Mark Levin had Ron DeSantis on, on his Fox show to discuss his new book. And I thought it was, you know, very fair and pro DeSantis interview. And then Fox News Channel has this documentary coming out or has already aired, I guess, in part uh, about Ron DeSantis, which appears to be very, very pro DeSantis. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the trailer for this, which I think is a mistake politically, but it's interesting, it's indicative of, of a larger reality, is that they've been using Jeb Bush. Another former governor of Florida, obviously the the son and the and the brother of two U.S. presidents, um, George W. Bush and George Herper Walker Bush, and a guy who, in a rational world, would have a lot of street cred among Republicans as far as who can get elected and who can do a good job. But of course, that's not the world we live in now. Jeb Bush is almost a curse word, especially among Trump people and the core Republican base. And I've seen a lot of reaction that, oh, wait a minute, if Jeb Bush is is endorsing Ron DeSantis, then Ron DeSantis can't be any good. Now, that's just insane logic there. Um, but that's the where that's the place we are now. This is the, the bizarre place that exists when it comes to Republican politics. We're somehow being praised by Jeb Bush is a bad thing in a Republican primary. Well, Donald Trump knows this. And Donald Trump is also, I think, very fearful of the fact that the largest conservative media outlet by far, Fox News Channel, is at the very least not on his side in this emerging battle between him and DeSantis. And so as he does about every two or three days, which means we get to talk about this on every episode of The Death of Journalism, Trump, as of this morning, has once again attacked DeSantis, and this time Fox News Channel. By posting on Truth Social, Trump said the following, Fox News is promoting Ron DeSantis, which appears to be the nickname that Trump is going with. Again, I don't really understand the DeSanctimonious thing, but DeSantis is, is better. It's funnier than DeSanctimonious. Uh, but Fox News is promoting Ron DeSantis so hard and so much 
that there's not much time left for real news. Reminds me of 2016 when they were pushing Jeb, exclamation point. Now, that's not really true, by the way. But truth, of course, has never been a hindrance to Donald Trump. There, There was no huge pushing of Jeb in 2016. Uh, in fact, uh, if you remember correctly, everybody in the media uh, at this just after this time period in 2015, leading into the 2016 primaries, was pushing him, Donald Trump. Bill O'Reilly was pushing Donald Trump. Sean Hannity was pushing Donald Trump. So th- this idea that somehow um, Jeb was the guy uh, is just ridiculous. But back to Trump's uh, post, the new Fox poll which have always been purposely terrible for me, which is not true, has, quote, Trump crushing the sanctimonious, unquote. By the way, that was not the Fox headline. (laughs) The Fox headline, which Trump puts in quotes, was not Trump crushing the sanctimonious. (laughs) But that's, in Trump's mind, that's what the headline said. But it is true. There was a Fox poll that indicated that Trump was winning nationwide, not statewide. Uh, which is very different, especially when it comes to a primary situation. Back to Trump's post. But they barely show it. Instead, they go with losers like Karl Rove, Paul Ryan, and now even Jesper. I don't even know who Jesper is, by the way. I probably should, but I don't know who he's referring to. He puts in quotes, Jesper. Who have been wrong about everything, exclamation point. Isn't there a big, beautiful network which wants to do well and make a fortune? Besides, question mark, fake news, capital letters, exclamation point. So Trump uh, is basically saying there, um, what the hell happened to Fox News? They're promoting my opponent who hasn't even announced yet. They're ignoring this poll where I'm beating Ron DeSanctimonious. And they have all these rhinos who are criticizing me. And uh, where have you gone, Fox News Channel? Basically, he's also, interestingly, pushing for Newsmax, I think, uh, because Newsmax is the the network that is much more likely to be doing his bidding for him. And they're in a battle with DirecTV to even basically stay on major cable systems. So Fox News Channel rules the roost when it comes to Republican politics. And uh, I think Trump is, is right to be concerned about where Fox News Channel is on this. Now, but there's also a big difference between praising Ron DeSantis and criticizing Donald Trump. I'm not going to believe that there's been a sea change here unless and until I see major conservative media figures openly criticizing Donald Trump. And that's not going to happen unless and until it's clear he's going to lose, which, you know, is kind of a chicken or the egg situation. It's a catch 22, which came first, which you got, you got to have one, to get the other, I think. I don't think this is just going to happen naturally. I just don't believe that this cancer is going to recede without major chemotherapy or without a major surgery to remove it. There's going to be some pain involved, but no one is willing to take that risk. And so that's where we are on this. Now, as far as Trump himself, he got a major, major break once again when it came to his luck and how oftentimes his enemies are his best friends and how the liberal media does him favors because they can't help themselves. But this is, I think, very significant. 
keep using the word significant. Everything's significant this week. I apologize for that. But uh, this, this is very relevant because it could have a major impact on the one thing that could stop Donald Trump other than his health. I mean, I don't believe that DeSantis is going to be able to just stop him by deciding to run. And obviously his health could do that, especially at his age. But in theory, a legitimate criminal indictment could, I'm not saying it would, but could have a major impact against him. And the best chance for that was what's going on in Georgia with a grand jury investigating election interference on the part of Donald Trump. And I'm one of those that believes that of the many investigations into Donald Trump, this one has maybe the the most meat and was the most legitimate and could potentially do the most damage until the female grand juror, uh, four-person, came out, a woman by the name of Emily Coors, came out and bizarrely, and I mean bizarrely, gave a series of interviews to liberal media outlets where she acted like a complete nut job. And I'm not exaggerating. You've probably seen this because it's gone hugely viral, but it's worth playing. And this is one of those rare audio clips where, you know, I wish you could see the video because you got to see her face while she's saying all this. But I think the audio itself probably does give you the message because you can almost envision this woman's face as she's making this statement about how excited she would have been to be able to swear in Donald Trump. And this is a young woman who very obviously should not be in her position and clearly should not be giving interviews as a grand juror. I didn't even know that you were legally allowed to do this. Uh, She's certainly legally restricted in a lot of what she's allowed to say, but this was just so dumb on so many levels And, you know, we live in a world of perception. And when it comes to perception, I believe that this clip, along with others similar to it, have basically invalidated that entire grand jury investigation, at least when it comes to Donald Trump. And here's what that sounded like on NBC. Did you personally want to hear from the former president? I wanted to hear from the former president. But honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in? I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. It is absolutely unbelievable how much luck Donald Trump continues to have when it comes to his opponents. I I mean, he's he's a lot like O.J. Simpson. You know, in the O.J. Simpson case, it seemed like O.J. always benefited from, from, his enemies screwing up and from the fact that he was such a huge celebrity that strange things would happen that would not happen in a normal case. Well, it's similar here where in a normal case, you would not have the four person of the grand jury doing interviews like this. And in perception, and this doesn't have anything to do with the substance of the case, obviously, but perception is what matters here. And, Perception-wise, I do believe, with agree with those, that even on the left, people on the left are, I think, rightly freaking out that this woman has single-handedly destroyed any chance of an indictment in this case having any real political or legal impact. Even, even Saturday Night Live w- was mocking this. Even the people on the view, the nut jobs and the idiots on the view, 
have been saying the same thing, which is the only thing that makes me wonder if maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> if I'm agreeing with the women on the view, there might be a problem. But I think this is just so obvious that, you know, even a blind squirrel can can find an acorn from time to time. So the, the reality is that that investigation is now potentially uh, erased from the very short list of things that can stop Donald Trump. So now we're basically to <laughs> Donald Trump's health, which I've said many, many times is the number one issue every single day in this Republican 2024 race. And whether or not somehow Ron DeSantis can thread an unbelievable needle and get over 50% of the vote in most states and somehow uh, pull this thing off in a way that uh, makes him still viable in the general election. Obviously, we'll continue to talk more and more about that as things go along, but I do think that we're seeing some very significant development. There it is, that word again. Some very important developments, even though it's February 2023. People don't quite understand that, especially in the modern era, these presidential campaigns are like aircraft carriers. I mean, turning them around is very difficult once they start down a particular path. And and to change it, it really does require a black swan event, like Trump having a heart attack or something crazy like that. Barring something like that, I think that the path here is pretty uh, obviously and easily seen. And that's why um, I'm a little bit more agitated in February 2023 than I would be normally because I see where this is going and it makes me very, very nervous. Although, as I said earlier, there are some reasons for optimism if you're in the anti-Trump camp. Now, the biggest underreported political story in the United States at the moment, in my view, is very clearly what's going on with U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman. It is absolutely unbelievable by even today's standards that John Fetterman in February, less than basically a less than a month or barely a month into his new job as a six-year U.S. senator, which he got by telling people and the media telling voters that his stroke is just a temporary medical problem. He's going to get better. It doesn't really impact his thinking. He's still going to be able to do the job. Just trust us. He got elected in a very contested state, one that was should have been won by Republicans if they actually nominated someone who was credible and from Pennsylvania instead of Dr. Oz, that this guy can go to the hospital not once but twice, currently is in the hospital with no sign of when he's getting out, this time for depression, again, a month into the job. And now we learn from tweets that his wife, Giselle, took the family, took the kids, and went to Canada. Went to Canada when Fetterman went to the hospital apparently the second time in a very short period because of medical problems. Again, the first time was because of lightheadedness apparently related to the stroke, and the second time was for severe depression. And as someone who has suffered from severe depression at the time, I I get it, I'm empathetic, but in no way, shape, or form should that stop you from doing a brand new job uh, as a U.S. senator. I'm sorry. And if it's that bad, then you need to resign. If it's really that bad, you need to resign your job. But this story is at least nationwide. I don't know how big of a deal it is in Pennsylvania. I'm sure the media there is carrying the water for 
for the narrative that Fetterman's just doing the best he can under, under bad circumstances. But nationwide, it's basically being ignored. Much like Dianne Feinstein here in California. I mean, she can't do her job and she's going to be on uh, in the Senate for another two years, uh, despite, despite the fact that she has clear dementia, has no idea where she is at times. Well, Fetterman, who knows, could be even in worse shape. There are all sorts of crazy rumors out there that I don't believe that that he is in far worse shape than even what's being said. But let me give you an indication of of the how incredibly soft and absurd some of the media coverage is surrounding Fetterman. And of course, there's two tacks they can take here. They can ignore and they can also try to rationalize. And this is from The Independent, and it was posted on MSN.com. Headline, John Fetterman's wife, Giselle, says family forced to flee to Canada to avoid, quote unquote, media circus over depression. Now, right there. So that's the story. The story is that it was the wife of Fetterman feeling like she was forced to flee, that it was not her fault. And the issue is not that Fetterman can't do his job. No, no, it's that this the pressure here is so great that they had to flee to Canada. The article writes, the family of Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman described how they fled to Canada to escape a quote-unquote media circus over his severe clinical depression. By the way, this article puts media circus in quotes, both in the headline and the first uh, the, the lead, the first sentence. And I don't believe that the word media circus are actually ever used. That's an interpretation that they have of... Uh, Giselle Fetterman's uh, tweet, but I just found that to be weird and worthy of mention. But back to the article. Mr. Fetterman, a Democrat who won his first term last year while still recovering from a stroke that nearly killed him, checked himself into the Walter Reed Medical Center near Washington, D.C. earlier this month. Now his wife, Giselle, has said that media attention pushed her to take the couple's children and drive north into Canada for an impromptu holiday, because that's what you do. When your stroke victim husband who just got elected to the U.S. Senate is in the hospital for depression, you get out of town and you take a holiday to Canada. Ms. Fetterman tweeted, I'm not really sure how to navigate this journey, but I'm figuring it out slowly. Um, Then she says, one week ago today when the news dropped, the kids were off from school and the media truck circled our home. I did the first thing I could think of. Pack them in the car and drive. We talked about lots of hard things and how we will all have to face hard things about the need to be gentle with all and with ourselves. We did some scary things, but we did them together. We ziplined over Niagara Falls and our son August got stuck. We talked about flexibility and the need to always have an open heart and an open mind. Um, and then she, I mean, which is the whole thing is bizarre. This is so many levels of insanity here that it's difficult to know where to start. But let me just finish with the article. A, this is where they, the, the article that gets to the core issue here that they think is the core issue, which is these mean, nasty Republicans that did this to Fetterman. Aides have said that Mr. Fetterman may remain in hospital for weeks, suggesting that his depression may have been stoked by, quote, negative experiences during his election campaign. His depression may have been stoked by negative experiences during his election campaign. Mr. Fetterman faced numerous attacks from 
Republican politicians and pundits claiming that his stroke had left him without the mental fitness to fill the post, sometimes in vicious terms. But let's be clear. They were, I don't forget about whether they were vicious or not. And I, I don't, I don't believe that they ever reached the point of being vicious because we're talking about a six year Senate term here. This is not, this is not a, a, a meaningless job. This is, this is a job that's very, very important and could have determined the, the, who controls the U.S. Senate and could determine all sorts of important things like who gets to the U.S. Supreme Court if someone dies in the next two years, specifically if it's, if it's Clarence Thomas who happens to die. So the idea that they were vicious is false. But here's the more important thing. They appear to have been right. The, the entire Republican argument here was that the stroke left him without the mental fitness to fill the post. Well, he's in the hospital because of mental problems, both related to the stroke and depression. He can't do the job. So you're, so you're saying they were right, except they don't say anything about that here. It's not even close to being said. Instead, they go on, his primary care doctor said that he has no actual cognitive deficits, but suffers from auditory processing problems that mean he often needs captions to understand other people's speech. The controversy continued after his victory with conservatives accusing him of deceiving voters as to the extent of his illness while disability advocates argued that he was being unfairly stigmatized for needing accommodations that are often required by law in U.S. workplaces. No, that's not the issue. The the, the first issue was, okay, can he do the job as well as a healthy person? And that's a legitimate issue. And that was very much open to interpretation. Because if you're not able to articulate your thoughts in the same way that everyone else can, and you can't have communication like everybody else can, that's a handicap. Doesn't mean you can't do the job. No, but it is a handicap. That's a hindrance. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But now we're in a completely different realm, which the, this article ignores almost hilariously. That we're no, that's not the point anymore. The point is not the accommodations. The point is he's in the hospital with no end in sight. With no indication that this narrative that we were told that he was going to improve with time was actually true. That was a lie. And now we're being told that, well, it was because he didn't take it easy during the campaign. Well, then he shouldn't have run. He should have withdrawn. And the most important part of this is, I cannot repeat this enough, he's not on the job. And it's because of depression, which is 
not something that's going to leave if that's the real cause, not going to leave anytime soon. And frankly, again, as someone who has suffered at times, especially after my mother was killed in a car accident in 1994 from severe depression, um, I know firsthand, while it's difficult, you can do it, especially when the job is important, like being a U.S. senator. You can do it. And if he can't, so so near to the starting line, then that's a major problem. And it is absolutely absurd that the news media is just pretending that this is still, they do this all the time. They switch what's the issue, what the issue is. Oh, the issue is the accommodations. No, no, no. The issue is he can't do the job. He's in the hospital. Pennsylvania only has one senator. California really only has one senator. But at least she has, you know, the staff that can cast the votes for her because she's there in person. That's all they have to do is just get her there in person or get her to pull the right lever. And this would be a massive issue if Herschel Walker had won in Georgia because then control of the Senate would be at stake. But right now it's just an issue of how many votes the Democrats have and whether or not Pennsylvanians are being properly served by a guy who cannot do the job currently. It's just, it's unbelievable. Um, all right. So I want to shift gears now to one of the biggest issues facing America. And there's several issues and stories and, and, and news developments related to it. And it's the issue of race and diversity and equality versus equity, which is a consistent theme uh, of this podcast where I think the word equity, in, if there was one word that ever brought down a, a, a country that might be the word equity is what's going to happen and what is happening here in the United States of America. But there are several stories that have happened in the last few days related to race, one of them involving uh, Scott Adams, the cartoonist, the creator of Dilbert, um, that I wanted to reference. But I wanted to start by playing a clip from the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. And she, of course, is black and she is a lesbian And that, of course, is the major qualifications that she has for her job. She's not particularly bright. She's not good at the job. But uh, she uh, went on a, uh, I guess you would call it a rant. I'll call it a rant, uh, a a monologue about how awesome the Biden administration is on the issue of diversity. And you might call it equity, although one of my major problems with equity, and I've said this before, is not just that when liberals talk about equity of outcome as opposed to equality of opportunity, this was a country based upon the concept of equality of opportunity, not equity of outcome, but they've changed equality to equity. But one of the worst parts about equity is it's not really even equity. Equity to them means that whatever group they're in favor of gets more than equity. Equity in theory would be right that every Every industry would be filled with exactly or close to the exact percentage of people that are represented in the overall population. In other words, 13% of all jobs would be filled by black people and 51% would be filled by women, I guess, uh, depending on the demographics. And you'd have a certain percentage of lesbians, which would be very low and an even lower percentage of transgendered people if you did it by pure equity. Again, I'm not supporting that in any way, shape, or form, but in theory, that's what it would be. But even that's a ruse. Even that's a scam. That's just a way of getting the, the camel's nose into the tent. That's just that's just a way, that's the slippery slope. 
where they they decide, okay, well, in the, in the, for the sake of equity, we have to go further than the percentages because you know we have to make up for past injustices. And so here is the White House press secretary making the case of how awesome the Biden administration is by basically by basically saying, you know what, uh, straight white men and even to a lesser extent uh, straight white women. You know what? Uh, we are discriminated against you in in enormous ways, and we're damn proud of it. And here's what that sounded like: uh, the cabinet is majority people of color for the first time in history. The cabinet is majority female for the first time in history. A majority of White House senior staff identify as female. Forty percent of White House senior staff identify as part of the racially diverse communities. And a record seven assistants to the presidents are openly LGBTQ plus. So again, this is something that the president prides himself on. As a straight white guy, I found that to be offensive. As a guy who believes in equality of opportunity, I found that to be offensive. But the most important part of this is that there's no pick up on this from the news media. The news media should make this into at least an issue, if not a scandal. Instead, they just nod along and go, oh, well, you know, they're, they're, they're taking credit for what they said they were going to do. And that's just the way politics works. Well, no, 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 no. This is discrimination. This is discrimination against the people that do not belong to the groups that they favor, specifically straight white people, or more specifically straight white men. And of course, anybody in power, unless they're in the conservative media, who's a straight white man, is not going to raise any objections to this because you know what could happen? You could get canceled. You could get fired. So they're the last people on the planet that are going to actually stand up for this. And no, no other demographic group other than maybe straight white women has any incentive to stand up against this. So the media just lets it go because to do otherwise would be too dangerous, too dangerous, because that's the world we live in. Everyone's terrified, especially if you have no PC protection and your PC protection is based upon how many PC points you bring to the table. What is your race? What is your gender? What what is your sexual identity? Uh, <clears throat> what's your economic status? It's all that's that's the way it works now. It's all like a pinball machine of PC points, and that's how you get your job in the Biden administration. And that filters down into the rest of society. And with regard to this issue of being terrified to talk about race in any honest fashion, this has been the case for a long time. But I'm not sure it's ever been worse than it is today. And Scott Adams, who I referenced previously, found out about this, or maybe he already knew about it and just wanted to test it in a big way over the last week or so. Uh, Scott is a, a bit of an odd duck. Uh, I, I like him on many issues. He, he tends conservative. He tends contrarian. He, he was mostly anti-COVID insanity. Um, but he's really outspoken on the issue of race. And he is oftentimes misconstrued, uh, I think almost on purpose, he's misconstrued sometimes on what he says about race, but he has effectively been canceled over the last couple of days. Dilbert is being eliminated from all the newspapers, as if newspapers still exist, but the cartoon is is going to be dropped by basically everybody. Uh, headline in the New York Post, Dilbert dropped by newspapers over creator Scott Adams' racist rant. And you know, the New York Post is not even a liberal newspaper. It's usually a conservative newspaper. And I cannot stand it when news outlets, and they do this all the time. 
someone is attacked or they are canceled or they're fired for a racist rant or a racial slur. And then they don't tell you what it was that was actually said that supposedly broke the rules. They never actually say that. And that's when I always get very suspicious. All right, wait a minute. Hold on. I don't want the liberal media telling me what it is that is a racist rant or a racial slur or or something that broke the rules. Tell me what it was. Because when you don't tell me what it was, I get very skeptical, very suspicious that something else is going on here. Now, interestingly, I was one of the first to see what Scott Adams had said, and I even shared it on my Twitter feed, and I believe that that tweet of the video has over a million impressions, which is a lot for for my little uh, Twitter account. And I, when I saw what Adams actually had said, I realized he was done. And I was a bit conflicted here because it's kind of like um, watching an NFL football game and and seeing a quarterback get sacked in a way that you know should not be roughing the passer, but you know that in the wussify world in which we currently now live is going to be roughing the passer and probably within the rules is roughing the passer. So it was not that I was that offended by what Scott Adams said, because some, not all, some of what he said had truth to it, but I knew the way that he had said it was against the rules as they are currently created, at least for straight white men. And um, although Adams often talks about identifying as black, and I don't, I don't even understand what he's talking about there. But the, the reality is Adams has no PC protection. And so um, here is the, the larger clip. It's a little long, but I do want there to be some context where Adams talks about a Rasmussen poll, and this is the part that, of course, gets lost. The media, if there's one thing they did wrong in all this, is that they don't provide the context that he's talking about a poll that Rasmussen did where they asked black people, is it okay to be white? Is it okay to be white? Now, that should be a pretty easy answer, right? Yes, it's okay to be white. Well, Half of those responding, half of the black people responding to that poll were not able to say yes. Half said yes, and about a quarter said, I'm not sure, and a quarter said, no, it's not okay to be white. Uh, So, which is a pretty startling response. Now, I do think that Adams and some others are manipulating those results a little bit because it does sound terrible that half of blacks weren't able to say that that white people are okay, but it's a little bit different when a good portion of that is saying, I don't know, or maybe I don't understand the question. So, you know, it wasn't really half were saying black people are not okay, but I agree that the results were, were startling and upsetting. So I, I get the concern about the poll results, but that gets lost in all this. So that's the context uh, for Scott Adams on his, his video talk show where he goes into a a much longer rant. I wouldn't call it a racist rant, but he does say some things that I knew were obviously going to be seen as cause for cancellation. And here's what that sounded like. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, 
uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the fuck away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. Right? This can't be fixed. You just have to escape. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where you know I have a very low black population. Because unfortunately, there, you know, there's a high correlation between the density. And this is according to Don Lemon, by the way. Um, so here I'm just quoting Don Lemon when when he notes that the when he lived in a uh, mostly black neighborhood, there were a bunch of problems that he didn't see in white neighborhoods. So even Don Lemon sees a big difference in your own quality of living based on where you live and who's there. So I, I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's no longer a rational impulse. And so I'm, I'm going uh, to back off from being helpful to black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. Like I've been doing it all my life and I've been, the only outcome is I, be, I get called a racist. That's the only outcome. <laughs> it makes no sense to help black Americans if you're white. Uh, the, the, it's over. Don't, don't even think it's worth trying. Totally not trying. And there we go. You didn't expect that today, did you? <laughs> but those who don't want to focus on education, you just need to get away from them. Just get as much distance as you can. That's my recommendation. Um, and I'm also really sick of seeing video after video of black Americans beating up non-black citizens. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, you know, I realize it's anecdotal. And it you know, doesn't give me a, a full picture of what's happening. But every damn day, I look on social media and there's some black person beating the shit out of some white person. I'm kind of over it. I'm over it. Right? So I, I quit. What is it that Adams exactly said to get himself canceled? I'm not sure if it was one thing. It was kind of just more of a what the hell was that? And once it goes viral especially when you have no PC protection and you know, you're done. 
And it's very easy for newspapers to cancel Dilbert now because no one's buying newspapers to begin with, and they're not buying newspapers for Dilbert. And and my guess is, from his own reaction, I have a sense that Adams either knew and or purposely decided that he was going to get canceled over this. He doesn't seem very upset about it. Uh, it seems almost as if it was part of a plan. I don't know that, but that's my perception. I don't know. I, I frankly, for his sake, I, I hope that that's what what he wanted because at least then he would theoretically be prepared for it. Um, again, I don't agree with everything he said. I don't like the idea that he referred to black people as a hate group, uh, and there were a couple of other things that he said there that I, that I thought were inappropriate or over the line. But in general. In general, I I don't think that what he said should be cause for cancellation. You know, going back to the personal foul, you know, roughing the passer penalty, I don't think those should be the rules. I think we should be able to have greater freedom of expression when it comes to race. I'm always reminded of Adam Carolla, who jokes, and I'm not sure it was originally from him, but I've seen it from him uh, on a couple of occasions where Adam will tweet something like, it's time for us to have an open discussion on race in this country. You go first. I don't want to lose my job. And there's that's not just funny. That's true. Because no one wants to have an open and honest discussion about race, especially if you're a straight white conservative male with no PC protection, because you're going to burn up on reentry with any heat shields. And you don't even have to really say anything that's all that bad. But that's the world we're now living in. And that's not, you know, the whining of a straight white male. That is just a fact. The fact that no one else has an incentive to actually say. And everybody knows this. And we see it all the time. And that's why we see so much virtue signaling from other straight white males who don't want to lose their positions. I mean, my gosh, uh, just in the last couple of days, Brian Cranston, the actor, did an interview with Chris Wallace uh, on uh, CNN where he was calling Make America Great Again racist. And he had some convoluted argument that, well, inherently, if you want to go back to when America was great, black people wouldn't have been part of that. And so there, that's racist. By the way, it proves my pendulum theory, which I've said a couple of times on this podcast, where we can never go back to anything uh, in this realm because to go back is inherently admitting that, well, we're, we're paced, we're racist. I mean, the pendulum, you use the pendulum theory, anything that you've gone past previously in, in this, the pendulum sweeping from one side to the other is inherently now racist. So you can't even go back to when America was great again, because no, 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 that was a time period that wasn't as awakened, wasn't as woke as today. So therefore it's racist which is why we can never go back. <laughs> this is why this this is a slippery slope that only has one direction when it comes to race. But Brian Cranston is simply virtue signaling because as a straight white male in Hollywood, he has to. He needs to protect his position. And that's what happens all the time. Anybody who in any position of power, whether it's in the news media or in entertainment or in sports, they're the last people who are going to take any risk. They're going to do what's good for them. They're going to virtue signal and show how much against racism they are. Sally Field gave an acceptance speech at the SAG Awards where 
She basically condemned herself for having white privilege and, and she was praising all the black faces that she saw in the crowd because they're the ones that really overcame obstacles. And I'm like, yeah, you know what obstacle they overcame? They, they, they benefited from being born at, a, at the perfect time. Most of them, not all, but being born at the perfect time where being black in entertainment, in the entertainment industry went from being a potential negative to now being a huge positive because now it's almost a job description in many cases. And, and what's really amazing about that is very few people, even rational people, want to accept that reality. There are people who think that what I'm saying now is completely nuts, including people I know, like my friend Larry Wilmore, my old golfing buddy. We had him, the comedian, on an episode 33 of this podcast. He's a guy who, who is black, but he's he's lived a, a large, a really, you know, what I would call white experience through a good portion of his life. And he and I, we we don't agree on everything, but we agree on a lot. We have interesting and productive conversations. I think that episode that we did in episode 33 was really good interview. It was frustrating in some ways, but he and I, over the weekend, we got into a Twitter battle. You can try to find it for yourself. Maybe battle is too strong a word, but it was certainly a, a vigorous debate over the issue of this Little Mermaid movie that's coming out in a couple of months uh, via Disney, a remake of The Little Mermaid, where the lead actress is black. And Larry was completely befuddled as to how I could believe that the actress was chosen because of her race. And in my view, I'm like, are you kidding? Of course she was chosen by her because of her race. Doesn't mean she can't do the job. But obviously, Disney decided they were going to make a statement. They 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 want to have more non-white princesses, so they decided that okay, we can we can deal with the, turning the Little Mermaid from a white redheaded girl to a black girl. You know, we, that's a, that's we're making a political decision here, and you know, we'll choose the best black female we can uh, to to fill the position. That's what happened. It's obvious to me. And Larry thought I might as well have uh, been saying that the moon landing was uh, faked. Maybe, I mean, not to that degree, but darn close. And, uh, and you know, we barely were able to finish on, on good terms because I was just so stunned that he cannot see this. And this is a guy who's worked in the industry for decades in both the hiring position as well as someone who was hired, someone who, uh, you know, has probably gotten opportunities because he's black. I'm sure he, in his mind, he's lost opportunities because he's black. That's the way the world works. But now, especially in Hollywood, that's all that matters is your demographic. What's your, what's your race? What's your gender? What's your sexual identity? What's your age? Your demographics are everything. It's all that matters. It's demographics over all us, uber all us. And it's just sad. Because that's not what America was supposed to be about. And anyway, back to Scott Adams, he got some support from a very interesting source, Elon Musk. Uh, uh, Elon Musk responded to a supportive tweet of Scott Adams by saying two things. The media is racist. And then he responded to his own tweet by saying, for a quote-unquote very long time, U.S. media was racist against non-white people. Now they're racist against whites and Asians. Same thing happened with elite colleges and high schools in America. 
Maybe they can try not being racist. And while I've said I don't trust Elon Musk, especially when he's doing events with our King Gavin Newsom to announce new plants in California in a very awkward press conference that they held together, uh, I, I agree with a lot of what he says. And he's one of the very few straight white males who's willing to say it because guess what? He's either the richest or one of the richest men in the world and he owns Twitter. So I think he feels uncancelable and he's willing and able to say the truth. That is the truth. Now, uh, and that's wrong. It was wrong when black people were discriminated against legally and it's wrong when white people are discriminated against and Asian people are discriminated against legally. And, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to come up with a very important decision on affirmative action. I'm hopeful that they're going to come up with the the right decision, how much impact it'll have. Who knows? But this is a a very, very concerning situation. Uh, And I am more depressed uh, and more despondent and pessimistic on the issue of race in this country than I've probably ever been in my life because we have reversed ourselves in the last decade or so. We were on a bumpy but pretty decent path, an imperfect path forward towards the ultimate goal of a colorblind society. And now that is no longer the goal. The elites decided, screw that. And we're never going to get there, at least not on our timeline. And it fits our agenda in multiple ways to, uh, to force this, this bizarre world of equity. And even as the White House press secretary said, equity that's not even equity, inequity. <laughs> Uh, inequity of outcome in in a way that basically makes government as a puppeteer and the media as a puppeteer. And all the white people in the media are going along with it because they're afraid of cancellation, like what happened with Scott Adams. I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, there was a major mainstream media security breach on COVID, maybe even bigger than the ones we've talked about previously, It was certainly at least as interesting. And I'm referring to not a news outlet, although there's certainly been situations many times in the past where it had news value and significance. I'm talking about Saturday Night Live and Woody Harrelson. After Woody Harrelson uh, gave his monologue as the host of Saturday Night Live. And this was fascinating what happened here. Uh, because Woody Harrelson spent most of the time talking about his battles with drugs and alcohol and, you know, what a crazy life he's lived. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he dropped a joke about a movie script that he allegedly had been given that I guess he rejected because it was just too impossible to believe. And it was obvious to anybody with a thinking brain that he was making an allusion to the COVID panic and specifically to the pharmaceutical companies and their control over the media and the government and forcing us all to take a vaccine before uh, we were allowed out of our house. And that this scenario to him was impossible that anyone would believe. And this came almost out of nowhere during this monologue at the beginning of Saturday Night Live on NBC. And um, I'm going to play the clip. Now, the clip doesn't have the reaction of the crowd and the audience there because there was no reaction. It was basically stunned silence and confusion. But here's what the core of what Harrelson said 
uh, regarding this joke about this scenario in a script that no one could possibly believe. Okay, so the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea? <laughs> now, as I said, there was no audience reaction. And I don't know whether Harrelson was expecting there to be one, but this is obviously a very liberal uh, New York crowd. This is obviously a situation where Saturday Night Live itself, and I've criticized them for this many times, has been among the worst when it came to COVID response. I mean, they were still masking at the end of last season in an obvious overt virtue signal. They did very little content about the uh, COVID response. So that it was it all contrarian? They did one scene that was kind of contrarian. They almost had to apologize for it. And so for their host to do this, in a opening monologue was quite shocking. It almost reminded me of the old Sinead O'Connor, the, the singer Sinead O'Connor many, many, many years ago during the musical performance on Saturday Night Live where she took a picture of the Pope and then she ripped it up. And they had to take that out in the rebroadcast of Saturday Night Live on the, on the West Coast. Now, interestingly, they did not take out Harrelson's joke in the West Coast feed. So clearly this had been previously approved by the powers that be at Saturday Night Live and, and NBC. Um, and I, I thought it was funny. The delivery could have been a little bit better. It would have been nice if the audience understood it or we felt like they were it was okay to laugh or to, to applaud. Uh, you know, Woody Harrelson is somebody who is obviously a real liberal, who believes in real liberty. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, he's not a conservative saying this. He's liberal. And, uh, and you know, that's the way liberals used to be until COVID, at least. I kept wondering the whole time at the beginning of COVID, where the hell did the hippie generation go? They objected to everything that the uh, the government tried to make them do when they were kids, and now they're they're all down with the the establishment. And you know you can't be contrarian. And you know the, the idea that please give me another shot, even after we know that the shots don't do anything, is just it's just unbelievable and bizarre that that's the world that we were living in. But so Harrelson, good for him, is one of these few liberals willing to to in a big stage, say, wait a minute, uh, this is ridiculous. Can you believe we just did this? 
And so we add Woody Harrelson's name to this very strange list of people who have been major players when it comes to contrarian on the COVID tyranny. Woody Harrelson, Bill Maher, Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, (laughs) maybe a few others. Uh, These are not the, the people that I would have expected at the beginning of this to be the ones that would stand up in big ways. But the reaction to what Harrelson said is the ultimate proof that what he said had a lot of truth to it. Because let's be clear, he doesn't mention the word COVID there. He doesn't say anything about a virus. There's nothing in there that is directly related to the COVID response. Now, I'm not being naive. Uh, Obviously, that's what he meant. But it was fascinating that the left-wing media reaction to this basically proved his point better than he possibly could have ever imagined. Because one, they all immediately had a conniption about it. I mean, the Daily Beast, the Huffington Post, Variety, Rolling Stone, which used to be (laughs) anti-establishment as it gets, Rolling Stone, all four of those outlets immediately put out that, you know, oh my God, Woody Harrelson, he's spewing COVID conspiracy theories on Saturday Night Live. Oh, let me clutch my pearls. Oh my gosh. But wait a minute. If this was really a bizarre conspiracy theory, as Rolling Stone, among others, referred to it, then how did you know that's what he was talking about? Because he never mentioned COVID. He never mentioned the virus. So if it was really all that bizarre, if it was really a, you know insane conspiracy theory, then how'd you know what he was talking about? And you, you didn't even make any bones about it. I mean, it was in the headlines and all those outlets I just referenced. Almost word for word, COVID conspiracy. Oh, COVID conspiracy. By the way, that's not even a conspiracy that he's joking about. <laughs> that, that's a conspiracy of self-interest, which is not the same thing as a quote-unquote conspiracy. Conspiracies of self-interest, which I strongly believe in as an art to, ardent anti-conspiracy guy, but Conspiracies of self-interest are the best conspiracies because there's no actual plan and there's no real way to blow it up and there's no incentive to blow it up because everyone's simply acting in their own self-interest. And that's what happened. Now, you know, did he exaggerate a little bit in his joke? Sure, but that's what a joke is about. It's a joke. But this is how insecure they are. You can't even joke about this. You can't even say, wow, can you believe what we just went through? If this was a movie script, I would have rejected it because no one would believe it. Just a joke. But because it landed a little too close to home, had a little too much truth in it, numerous elements of the left-wing media went went absolutely bananas in a way that actually proved Woody Harrelson's point. Now, elsewhere on the COVID front, the scorecard continues to get gruesome for the so-called experts when it comes to having been wrong on virtually everything. And the latest addition to that list, I mean, it's it's difficult to keep up. (laughs) At least once per episode recently on the depth of journalism, we've talked about an addition, at least what should be an addition to this list of things where the experts were at least mostly, if not totally, apparently wrong in what they said at the beginning regarding COVID. The latest addition is maybe the origins of the virus itself. 
This, of course, is the there have been two basic theories about how COVID-19 began. Was it uh, via a bat at a wet market in Wuhan or was it via a lab in Wuhan and uh, Wuhan, China, obviously? And, of course, Fauci and the rest of the experts, they went with the the bat theory uh, right from the start. And at times the media uh, called those who who were in favor of the lab theory, again, like Harrelson, conspiracy nuts and dangerous purveyors of misinformation. Well, the Energy Department, I'm not exactly sure why the Energy Department is the source of this, but the U.S. Energy Department has come out with a conclusion on their analysis of the situation. And they have said now, officially, that it is likely that COVID came, shockingly, from a lab in Wuhan, which even Jon Stewart, speaking of comedians or people from the entertainment industry, I mean, Jon Stewart, who's a liberal, was one of those that said, I'm sorry, but it seems kind of logical that if you've got something that originates in Wuhan and there's a a Wuhan COVID lab (laughs) that, you know, the idea that it could have escaped or leaked out or whatever from that lab seems kind of uh, consistent with Oxum's razor. That's the most, the simplest, most logical explanation. And that this idea that somehow a bat in a wet market transferred to humans in exactly the same place that has this lab seems a bit far-fetched. And, you know, that might be the, con- the the wacky conspiracy theory. Those are my words, not Stewart's. But even John Stewart, he got criticized for that. Larry, Larry Wilmore and I talked about that in our, in our interview in episode 33 because he's buddies with John Stewart. And so, um, you know, this is not a shock. However, I do want to emphasize, because I'm a truth guy, that the Energy Department does not say declaratively that that's what they now know to be true. They actually say that they have a low level of confidence in this conclusion. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that this isn't anywhere near, like, for instance, the Cochrane Report on masks, which really was definitive, regardless of what the liberals will tell you, uh, who are hanging on to their religion that somehow masks still work. The reality is, though, that I, I believe that this came from a lab. And how it did, I don't know. What the political significance of that is, I don't know. It certainly deserves and demands investigation. But the biggest problem I have in, on this topic is the, the censorship and the deriding of those who even suggested the lab theory as being the nut jobs and the conspiracy theorists. Because once again, it turns out, as has happened many times before, that the nut jobs and the conspiracy theorists were the ones who appear to have been right. And that's why you don't censor people, especially legitimate people in the middle of a panic. In the middle of a panic, when there's censorship involved, whether it's direct or indirect censorship, and the media is good at both, especially in a panic, because in this particular situation, oh, we can't have anything that goes outside the narrative because lives could be lost. So they had the ultimate rationalization to be able to just say, no, no, we're only going with one one voice here. Masks work, vaccines work, social distancing work, schools should be closed, sports should be closed, and this thing came from a, a wet market in Wuhan through a bat. And that's the 
truth. And anybody who says it's not is pro-virus and pro-death and pro-Trump. And we're just not going to accept any of that. That's basically what happened. Well, they were wrong almost all the time, especially when it came to masks, especially when it came to vaccine efficacy. And there's new evidence on that as well. Uh, There's a, a George Mason study. George Mason, not a conservative outlet, George Mason University. They came out with a a study that, guess what? Vaccine mandates showed no evidence of reducing COVID cases in major cities. By the way, they also concluded with, with less certitude that they didn't even really help that much with regard to in, uh, uh, the decreasing of deaths and hospitalizations, but mostly it was about the transmission of the virus, number of cases, which is what people like me have been saying from very early on. Just to review, for the first couple of months, I was in the camp of those that saying, wow, it certainly looks like the vaccines are awesome. They're magic. They stopped transmission because cases were falling off a cliff. Now, why that happened, whether it was a combination of coincidences and it was just the end of a wave at the exact same time that the, the, the vaccines were coming out or maybe the vaccines lost their efficacy over time, who knows? But the reality is the vaccines do absolutely nothing to stop transmission, haven't done so for a very long time, at least a year and a half, if not longer. And now I think the, the strongest evidence is that having the vaccines and the boosters actually increases your chances of getting the virus. Now, what it does once you have the virus, I still think that's open to interpretation. Whether or not it causes actual harm, I don't know yet. I, I There's concerning evidence, both anecdotally and data-wise, but I'm still open on, on what the re- reality of that is. But here we have yet another data point. Oh, by the way, they lied. Oh, by the way, the experts were wrong. Oh, by the way, those that were derided and called conspiracy theorists and denialists, COVID deniers, we were the right ones. We were the ones that were right, but the media will never fully admit any of this, even when the evidence is overwhelming. And the, uh, you know, the, the greatest evidence of that recently, in the last week or so, is the issue of masks. Last episode, episode 35, I went into a very long, I think fairly entertaining rant about the, the entire mask issue. And I was one of those from the very beginning that said masks clearly don't work. Everyone knows they don't work. There's no logic to them working. There's no science behind them working. There's no data showing that they work when there should be massive amounts of data since we have this very unique situation where, where we have real world, real time data throughout the entire world and they can't find any place on the planet where masks do anything positive at all. And so then the Cochrane Report thing comes out. Brett Stevens writes about it in the New York Times in an opinion piece, not a news piece, because the New York Times is afraid to make it a news piece. And and there are still the last of the Mohicans still desperately on the left trying to hang on to the idea that, no, 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 no. Cochrane Reports is wrong. The New York Times is wrong to publish Brett Stevens' opinion piece. It wasn't a news piece. It doesn't really count because I so desperately want to believe my religion is real and that my mask that I've been hanging on to as a security blanket for the last couple of years actually works. And the worst example of this came in the LA Times, not a surprise. And their columnist, Michael Hiltzik. Now, Michael Hiltzik is a Pulitzer Prize winner, which, you know, about 
15 years ago, I might have thought was a positive. Now, especially after my Penn State Sarah Ganim experience, I now believe is a negative to be a Pulitzer Prize winner. But he decided it was his job to desperately try to create a fig leaf for his fellow mask wearers. And he did so in the LA Times. And I want to share some of that column with you uh, from a couple of days ago. He begins by asking a question. What is it about conservative COVID deniers and masks? Conservative COVID deniers. Right there. Uh, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. Conservative COVID deniers. This has nothing to do with liberal conservative. The only reason why it's liberal conservative is because masks became popular on the left because they were an anti-Trump virtue signal. So the question should be, why is it that left-wingers and blue cities are the only places that are still imposing masks, even in, in schools and on school children? It's a blue situation. It's a liberal situation. It's not just conservatives. And you're not a COVID denier to say that masks don't work. COVID denier? No, I'm not a COVID denier. I don't know anybody who's a COVID denier. I never heard of anybody being taken seriously as a COVID denier. But right there, when you start using the denier word, that's religious. That's a religious terminology. So right there, it's game, set, match. But I continue on with Hiltzik's column. For some reason, oh, I don't know, maybe because they don't work. Michael, for some reason, mask mandates have been the target of more overheated carping by right-wingers about anti-COVID measures. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Then almost anything else, vaccines aside. Again, because they don't work. They don't work. And everyone knows this. They physically attacked retail staffers for trying to enforce mask rules. Oh, okay. I don't know which what he's specifically referring to. I'll accept that maybe somewhere someone physically attacked a retail staffer. I've certainly wanted to physically attack a lot of people for trying to enforce mask rules in insane ways. But what about all the insane mask people who physically attacked those that weren't wearing a mask, Michael? (laughs) They've marched performatively around public spaces with their mugs proudly bared, carried on endlessly about how mask mandates infringe on their individual liberties. Again, this is a liberal, an old liberal, a guy who used to believe in in individual liberties. But now, because it's a political issue and it's become part of the left-wing religion, no, no, no. Now, all of a sudden, standing up for individual liberty is an indication that you're a COVID denier. The mask critics are now touting what they seem to think is evidence for their claim that mask mandates don't work. It's a meta-study. That is a compilation of studies on physical interventions against the spread of respiratory viruses. That includes chiefly masks of various types and hand-washing. The anti-maskers jumped 
right on the study soon after its publication by the usually trusted Cochrane Library, asserting that it proved that masking didn't work against COVID-19. Leading the triumphal parade was Brett Stevens, the New York Times columnist and certified member of the Don't Confuse Me with the Facts crowd. See, Stevens surfaced the other day with a column purportedly based on the Cochrane study. And he wrote, those skeptics who were furiously mocked as cranks and occasionally censored as misinformers for opposing mandates were right, Stevens wrote in the New York Times. The mainstream experts and pundits who supported mandates were wrong. A few things about this, Heltzig writes. First, one lesson about Stevens that many people learned long ago was that he doesn't do his homework. This is all abject twaddle. Nothing about American habits would have interfered with more masking if conservative politicians didn't declare that it was a violation of American values. Nothing in the Constitution obstructs mask mandates any more than obstructs seatbelt laws or indeed the Affordable Care Act's insurance mandates. The Supreme Court has said so. Wait a minute. Okay. So basically what Hiltzik is trying to say is, well, first of all, the Cochrane Review did say that, uh, you know, they didn't say definitively that masks don't work. And I addressed this issue in episode 35, that this was a fig leaf that, of course, they were going to put in there. You have to put it in there if you're going to be doing true science, because it is theoretically possible that in one situation, a mask might help somebody a little bit. I don't believe there's any evidence of that, but it's theoretically possible. Plus, they put that in there politically as a fig leaf for they knew people were going to attack them. And so this fig leaf is used as cover for CCC. They didn't 100% say that masks don't work, except we have this problem with the data. The data makes it very, very clear that they don't work. Normally, we'd be relying on studies. In the normal situation, we'd have to rely on the studies. We're not in a normal situation because for almost three years, we have places that have been using masks and not using masks, and we have incredibly detailed data, real world data, people testing positive for a virus. And how many people in any jurisdiction are testing positive? That's never happened before. So now we know definitively what we always presumed and what other studies had always suggested. They don't work. But that doesn't matter to people like Hiltzik because it's a religion. And the idea that there's something analogous to seatbelt laws or the Affordable Care Act insurance mandates, just because you use the word mandate. It's not the same thing. And if you can't see that it's not the same thing, then I can't help you. I cannot help you. Plus, there's evidence that the seatbelt laws actually work. There's logic to it. There's data to prove that seatbelt laws, and I'm not a big, I'm a libertarian. I I, I use my seatbelt, but I, I don't think that it should be necessarily the law in all cases. I, I'm a bigger, I have a bigger problem with the cell phone law in cars. That really drives me crazy because there's all sorts of things to distract you from driving. The cell phone uh, is one of them. But by that logic, you ought to ban kids from ever driving in cars because I think kids are a bigger distraction than talking on your cell phone is. But I digress. This is the the, the limits of the intellectual capacity of somebody who won the Pulitzer Prize and is the main columnist of the LA Times, that they're somehow analogizing mask mandates to seatbelt laws and the Affordable Care Act's insurance mandate. How do you even have a discussion with somebody like that? That's a religion. It's not based in facts. It's not based in logic. And it's not based in truth. 
And it's also not surprising because it's about therapy. This is about providing therapy for the core audience of liberals who are confused about whether or not they now should have been wearing a mask for the last couple of years. (laughs) Now that they're being told, even in the New York Times, even though it's only an opinion piece, that they do absolutely nothing. Now, I'm one of those that has made a direct connection between the COVID response and the entire issue of global warming climate change. And over the last week, we've had extraordinarily cold, wet, and snowy weather here in California, something that I have talked about previously on other episodes of the podcast because it's happened all this winter and how I believe that this winter is an extraordinary data point that goes against so much of the conventional wisdom in the news media about global warming and climate change. Because they keep telling us that California is the smoking gun. This is where the real world impact of global warming climate change is in the United States of America. We see this through the permanent drought. We see this through the small amounts of snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. We see this through wildfires. We see this through incredibly hot temperatures in October when It's always hot in Southern California. So this is the place that's the smoking gun. Well, that smoking gun has uh, been a smoking gun. Now I believe that these people are full of crap and it's not weather. Now when it's an entire winter and it's not the issue that, you know, we don't have a water problem anymore. Now that it's clear that the drought really is over, we will have another water problem. And at least, you know, unless we keep getting this, uh, unusual weather, we, uh, which we get every once every five or six years. It's very cyclical as weather tends to be. But here in California, every once every five or six years, we have a big winter rain slash snow. And then we get several years without it and we get a drought. And then the drought ends. The same thing happened in, in 2017, 2018. And the same thing's happening now. It's cyclical. It's not unusual. It's, it's the nature of climate. It's the nature of of weather. But what's imp- so we're going to have a water problem again because we've done a lousy job of conserving our water here. We have too many people, overpopulation, no distillation plants, and you know, our, our reservoirs are poorly run and we let a lot of it just run right into the ocean. But it's not because it, we're not getting enough rain or enough snow. But here's the most important part. That I think this gets this point is much more important and it gets missed a lot. It's not that the current winter has eliminated the drought and our 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 water problem. I mean, here the LA Times, the LA Times reaction to the most recent winter storms was this. Experts said it will take more than a series of storms to make up for years of deficits. Some said declaring the drought over now or possibly ever would be a mistake. This is an article headlined with all this rain and snow, can California really still be in a drought? Look deeper. (laughs) So you're saying this is all political. It's not scientific. That's what this is. The the decision to declare the drought over should be political because we can't let people get down on their guard. This is so much like COVID, folks. We can't say this is over. No, because then we'll let our dark guard down. (laughs) Somehow that's going to dramatically change reality on the ground when it comes to how much snow and rain and water we have uh, available, which is ridiculous. But that's the way liberals think. But it's not even about the fact that for the next year or two, we're good on water. It's about what this says about those that were claiming that man-made catastrophic climate change and global warming is real. 
It should completely discredit them. Again, so much like what's happened with COVID. They were wrong. We haven't had wildfires in 15 months here. Our snowpack is at a literal all-time record. I spend almost every day of the winter looking at the forecast for the Sierra Nevadas because I know our snowpack is everything, and I also know it dramatically impacts our yearly vacation to Yosemite National Park. My wife, it's her favorite week of the year. We go every year in the summertime. And so much of that vacation is dictated by how much water there is. And the water is dictated by how much snowpack there is. So I am constantly rooting for snow in the Sierra Nevadas throughout the winter. I have never, in the 15 years that we've been doing this, I have never been in a situation where I'm now rooting for the snow to stop. Because there's too much. I'm actually now concerned we might not even be able to have our vacation or that if we do, the place is going to be so overwhelmed with water that we're not going to be able to do our normal activities in Yosemite. It's a literal record snowpack now. And it's not, you know, it's not an indication of climate change. That this is somehow this is being created by the global warming. It's been the coldest winter ever we've ever had in Southern California, 20 years that I've lived here. And, and by far the largest snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas. I mean, Larry Brown, uh, Jerry Brown, not Larry Brown, the basketball coach, Jerry Brown, former governor of California, famously, just a few years ago, before Gavin Newsom was governor, went to the Sierra Nevadas in the, in the middle of winter and stuck a ruler in the snowpack to show, aha, this is our permanent drought. This is why we're having man-made climate change and global warming, and this is the impact of it and why we have to change our entire way of life. Well, what about now, where the snowpack is literally the largest it has ever been in modern history, and it's not even close? It's just amazing. I mean, what could possibly disprove these morons? But this winner could not could not have even theoretically done a better job of that. And is that even remotely part of the media narrative? Of course not. Now, the LA Times is saying, no, no, we can't jump to conclusions. No, no, this is a political thing that we can't declare the drought over. We have to look deeper, look deeper. I mean, and then there's CNN. I love this. This is how quickly things change. CNN, just a few months ago, in November, this was a CNN headline. California's climate crisis is intensifying quickly and taking a heavy toll on residents, new data reveals. This is is November 2nd of 2022. Then a couple days ago, parts of Metro Los Angeles are still under a historic blizzard warning as heavy snow and rain pummel the region. This is just, just four months later. I mean, less than four months. It's absolutely, it's amazing. Same news outlet. No self-awareness whatsoever. Zero. And it, just like COVID, with all these revelations that they were wrong, it, it has no impact because they just ignore it. It doesn't fit the narrative. They come up with some rationalization, all to protect their, themselves, all to protect their agenda. The truth gets lost, and we continue down this path of doing insane things to destroy our way of life and our economy to stop a problem that does not exist that we have no control of to begin with. And other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Uh, All right. Well, that's a lot of stuff 
for episode number 36 of The Death of Journalism. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe, rate, review this uh, podcast episode and share it with others who are like-minded because obviously the news media is never going to help us get the word out about this. Until next time, thanks so much for listening to The Death of Journalism. My name is John Ziegler. The Death of Journalism is a Workhouse Connect, John Ziegler production. Executive producer, Mike Agavino, with our hosts, Liz Abib and John Ziegler. You can find The Death of Journalism wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, please give us a five-star rating and review. Please join our Twitter community, The Death of Journalism. Thanks for listening.